What would it be like to work for the President of the United States in the White House or for a U.S. Cabinet Secretary and then to work for both again after they left the administration? Today on Reputation Matters, our guest is Holly Kuzmich, who worked for President George W. Bush and also worked for U.S. Education Secretary Margaret Spellings, then went on to be the Executive Director of the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas, Texas. And now you can find her as Managing Director for the Draper Richards Kaplan Foundation. Holly Kuzmich, thank you so much for being here. Of course, it's great to see you, Creighton. Okay, so we've all, uh, people of a certain age, watched The West Wing or the old Michael Douglas movie, The American President. We all have these images of what it's like to work in the White House. What was it like for you? <laughs> um, <laughs> not quite like The West Wing or The American President, although I did love both. Uh, uh, from a practical perspective, uh, the w the efficiency with which they get things done in the White House is handled in a hallway conversation. Uh, there's a much more formal process to, to decision making in the White House, as I think we would all hope and expect right. than something like you see on a television show. But um, I think the thing I remember about it was every single day when you walked in those gates of the White House, you felt a sense of awe that you got to go to work there. Yeah. And that you had that job. And um, because you did walk into the place, I think it hit you every day in a way that, you know, a lot of other jobs can't sort of give you that that feeling and that sense of gratitude. How many years did you actually go into the White House? Three and a half in the White House. Never got old or routine? Never got old. Never got old. And one of the fun things you get to do is, you know, there's the normal White House tour where you get to go see the Blue Room and the Red Room and the State Dining Room and all of the normal places in the White House. But then if you work there, you get to give the West Wing tour in the evenings and on the weekends. And it's reserved only for people who work there who then invite guests who can get a West Wing tour. And so to be able to give the West Wing tour is yeah. a pretty special experience and a lot of fun. I imagine. Oh, and we're going to talk a little bit about that later. Um, and before we get to working with President Bush in particular, I think a lot of people have this impression that, especially as it relates to reputation, that politicians are only worried about getting reelected, that they're just worried about how they come across, how they're perceived what the perception is, what the polls are, right? I mean, even in some of the movies exacerbate this, yep. like what are the polling numbers, yep. right? Where are we? Is that an oversimplification or is that the reality of the situation? Well, I can only speak to the person I worked for and say he he made a, number one, he, he knew his values and he's always known his values. And that helped him come into the White House and say, here's what I care about, here's what I'm gonna focus on as he ran. And then when he was in the White House, he did not particularly pay attention to polls, nor did it drive sort of how he decided what he wanted to do. And he made at a specific point that Karl Rove, who was his political advisor in the White House, was not allowed, particularly at National Security Council meetings, because those were the big decisions about what we were doing on war and peace around the world. And he wanted no element of even having anyone at the table who had a political mindset because he wanted to have a very pure discussion about what should we do, what's the right thing to do, and not even have that sort of color it, even just by having somebody sitting there. In this day and age, I mean, even 12 years ago, that seems a little counterintuitive. I mean, so, I mean, everything is calculated, it has to be. I mean, you don't win an election in the year 2000 or 2004 without like yeah, thinking about these correct. things. So he he actually said that, Carl, He's you're not going correct. to come. 
He said that. Now, there's also a difference between once a decision is made, hmm. how do you think about talking about it? How if you're going to roll out a new policy decision or, a, a, you know, you you do bring the people in the room who are the communicators and the political minds to help you think about the crafting of that. Hmm. But in terms of actually the information you need to make a decision, he was he himself was pretty clear. I do not want the polls to be anywhere near sort of how we think about the policy. You said when he came into the White House, he had a clear sense of what he wanted. What did he say? How did that go? How did that come? This is what I want to do. This is what I want to accomplish. This yeah, well, he he had a very strategic set of policy speeches he made in the years, you know, in the year plus he was running. He had very specific policy proposals and white papers that got rolled out. I should have brought it with me. We, there was a book from 2000 that I still have, and I used it in all of my time at the Bush Institute, which outlined his priorities, his policies. And we actually had an office in the White House where we tr they tracked every campaign proposal he made and how we were doing against it during our time in the White House. Huh. So they were very rigorous in saying, OK, if he said he was going to do this when he ran, we actually need to follow through and we're going to measure it and sort of look at it every six months and say, did we are we trying to do it? Did we accomplish it? Did we accomplish it? Are we not even there? You know, um, it, it wasn't a fun process to have to kind of go through all of that, but it it certainly set a tone. Right. Yeah. I said this. And I intend on following up. I was going to ask you just generally what it was like to work for George W. Bush, but you almost get the sense as a preface to that question that sometimes he is it related to his reputation or public perception. He he just didn't care. Is But that may be untrue as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think to some extent he didn't care, um, but every, they do. Right. Every Every politician has to think to some degree about about what their persona is publicly. Um, but it was I mean, it's it's been nice to be able to get to know him behind the scenes. And I think, you know, one of the things he always talks about was maybe some of the things he said in office that were a little bit off the cuff mm. that he might have regretted or that his wife gave him a hard time about, you know, saying when he came home at night. Um, uh, but there is a lot of thought about like how you put him out, where you put him out, what's the environment, you know, is he giving a speech or is he talking to regular Americans? Like, yeah. is he going into the restaurant or is he going to a university and giving a speech? Like the backdrop and the setting for all of this, as you know, sends a message and sets a tone. I'd be interested if you could share a couple of examples of times where he was either personally admonished himself or Mrs. Bush admonished him for things that he said off the cuff to yeah. just to set the stage. There's there's two indelible impressions that I have of the administration where uh, one is just a question mark. Was that intended? The other was that didn't go as intended yeah. or didn't seem to. One is the the victory pose on the aircraft the carrier. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished, right, in the flight yeah. suit. The other, of course, is when Chief of Staff Andy Card came into the elementary school room on September 11th, 2001. Uh, Mr. President, we're under attack. Um, the president stayed right where he was, yes. stayed cool and calm and collected. But others, would, others of course, said he should have gotten yeah. up and, 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 yeah. and gotten out of the room. Yeah. Are those on the list? 
I think yes, he has very much talked about 9/11, right? As a as a as a very spur of the moment decision he had to make about how do I react to this piece of information. And I, he always talked about the fact that he was sitting in front of I think it was first graders. Yeah. I mean, they were young kids and that the cameras were lining the room and that he also knew that sort of buying 2 minutes of time would give his team time to sort of get a room set and be able to get the right people on the phone so that when he left he could have a serious discussion one of the other ones he talks about was when he he made the quote about wanted dead or alive he kind of made an off-the-cuff quote Mm -hmm. um and laura bush really gave him a hard time about it because it sounded very kind of cowboy like you know Mm -hmm western of him and she said you probably should have been a little bit more delicate about how you talk about something like that um and of course he you know the mission accomplished is an example of you know that was a miss right in terms yeah. of of a communications message that was uh too early so how did he take that feedback well number one he's not a he he's not a he takes feedback, but he's always kind of a forward looking person. So he doesn't sit there and kind of mull it in a way of like, woe is me. Why did we why did I do that? Um, he, of course, talks a lot, too, about the fact that he he's not always facile with the English language. <laughs> he would make up words. He would strategery say something inappropriate. He never said strategery. Do you really? know the story about this? No. So strategery was a meeting in the White House. It was actually called strategery once a quarter, and it was a forward-looking long-term planning meeting. But the team, like, that's what it was called. But it came from the fact that it was on Saturday Night Live. Right. And they made up the word. President Bush never knew he didn't say it until Lorne Michaels came to the Bush Center about six years ago and did an event on humor in the White House. And Lorne and President Bush met and President Bush said something about it. And Lauren said, well, you know, you didn't say that. We we created that. And he said, no, I said that word. <laughs> so he always, he believed for 15 years that he had said strategery, when in fact it was Saturday Night Live, who took the fact that he was not always accurate in some of his use of the English language and came up with this word, but that wasn't yeah. one of them. Misunderestimate. Nuclear. Nuclear. Yeah. 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 Can you think of a time where the president took your advice and another time where he didn't? I'm not going to necessarily say this one about my, my specific advice, but but when I was at the Bush Center, uh, you know, one of the things he very much believes is that it's not helpful for former presidents to be particularly involved in current political issues or giving the current president advice whether you strongly agree or strongly disagree, it's just not helpful. And he's he's been true to that in the 15 years now that he's been out of office. But he is also, he does recognize he has a voice. And so there were times when um, the team surrounding him at the Bush Center would talk to him about when it's important to make a statement. He, he uh, you know, when George Floyd was murdered, sort of there are questions like that of like, do I say something? I'm now a former, what's appropriate, what's not. Yeah. And that was a that was a case where he wondered, should I? And he talked to a particular member of the team who I'm not gonna name, who really said, you need to. Mm-hmm. This is important. And um, you know, so sort of thinking about like when to use your voice afterwards 
was something where he would definitely take our advice on when to do that. But he would also weigh in at times when he would say, no, not in that, not in that case. I think that's probably the starkest example of where he might or might not have said, I, I am or I'm not going to weigh in on certain things. No, there were times, and I don't want to skip too far ahead because there's so much about the administration and your time in the White House that's fascinating. But And, and we'll get to the Bush Institute in a minute. But in, in the meantime, it, it, just based on what you said, there were times it feels like during President Trump's administration where he bumped up against that line of commenting or not commenting. Um, how, how did you advise yeah. him on this is the time, was it based on him and his values or what was going on in the particular Yeah, situation? they're usually, I mean, the time when he would weigh in were usually on things that, uh, once again, it was it was not gonna be kind of an individual like political issue, right? right? I mean, he, and he's talked about this a little bit, he did not agree um, with President Obama's decision to pull troops from Iraq when he did that. And he did not necessarily agree with pulling troops from Afghanistan. And that was both a President Trump and a President Biden mm -hmm. decision. He did not specifically speak on that then to comment because his point was they're making the decision. What? Am, how is this going to help? He has talked about it afterwards, right? In the yeah. sort of years after that. Um, and and so the the purely kind of current day political issues that sit either in Congress or the White House, he was pretty careful to stay out of. Yeah. It was more the things that were about our nation's overall institutions and things that transcend kind of the American public where he felt like maybe he should weigh in at times. I mean, he did, uh, you know, he's always believed in the institution of the presidency. Mm -hmm. So he has been at every inauguration since he left office and he will i'm sure continue to do that um, as long as he's able to do it because no matter who's being elected whether he's a fan of them or not or whether he voted for them or not he's going to show up on that stage because he does understand the role of the former presidents in supporting the institution of the presidency and that a lot of other countries around the world do not see that peaceful transition of power that we have continued to maintain in this country. Uh, not since John Quincy Adams have we seen a father-son mm -hmm. presidency. Um, as it relates to reputation, was President George W. Bush particularly sensitive about things that were either said or the way his father was perceived? never well number one i think his father was pretty is particularly in the past you know when president bush 43 got in office people that like the reputation of president george hw bush was very good and yeah. so it's not like there were detractors that he had to be really defensive about his father but um uh but he was of course really proud of his father and very close to his father i never really saw him sort of feel like he had to you know, sort of step out of the shadow in any way. I mean, I think being in that office, like you get such a big platform and a role that he didn't really worry about sort yeah. of any, you know, overstepping of any kind in yep. any way or having to establish his own sort of role. It just inevitably happens when you're in that. And he's not one, I mean, you've, you've sort of asked about this a couple times, he's not one to sort of worry about what the chattering class says about him. That yeah. is one of the things I 
honestly respect about him and admire is that he's pretty able to like put a wall up, know what his own values are and what matters and tune out all of the media and the commentary and the, you know, whoever's making a statement. One of the things I talk about all the time is like, never believe your own press. Yeah. If if it's bad, if you believe your own press, you yeah. know, you'll be huddled up in the corner in the fetal position, rocking back and forth and drive yourself crazy. If it's good, your head will be too big. You know, don't. Yes. And, and so I think there's some wisdom to, especially elected officials who at some point just know how to turn it off, literally yes. and figuratively, yes. turn off the television, stop reading social media just for survival. Well, and he didn't, he had the benefit of not really having, I mean, there was the press, but he didn't really -social. have social media in the way that we do now. But yes, he, he generally tuned it out and he still does. It seems to me that the Bush family, the daughters and Mrs. Bush, that it's it's the the last time in recent history because I don't feel like the Obama family was the same way where the daughters were as out front or this was America's family. Oh, again, mm -hmm. again, Republican or Democrat, love them or hate them, the family seemed like they were out in front, um, accessible, not mm -hmm. too accessible. Was that by design? Yeah, I mean, well, I don't know that the girls. Uh, you know, the, the Jenna and Barbara were probably, I mean, they were in college when he was in his, you know, first term. Yeah. And he really wanted them to be able to still be college students and have as much of a private life as possible. And I think they generally did. They, with I Secret think, Service. Yeah, with Secret <laughs> Service, right? And sometimes, in, and they probably didn't want Secret Service around. Sure. Um, uh, it was then in the second term, I mean, he's talked about Jenna, who Jenna then decided she wanted to go campaign for her dad in 2004. And in 2000, it was kind of like, dad's running for, geez, dad's running for president. It's a bad thing. And then she, you know, she yeah. was in a different place in 2004 and really wanted to be uh, more public about it. But of course, they also they all had the benefit of seeing their grandfather in office. So that yeah. was part of what that family benefited from. Mm -hmm. Laura Bush benefited from it in terms of thinking about her role as first lady and platform of issues that you go address. And, you know, she'd also been first lady as governor, so that helps. They just had a lot of exposure to what this role is like in a way that so many other people don't. And and how, if you had to, you know, if someone came from another planet and you had to describe what this role is like, as you just said, how would you do the it? The role of first lady or just? The first family. The first family. Well, this was always interesting too. And in, in the post-presidency, we would get a lot of visitors at the Bush Center oftentimes foreign leaders, former prime ministers that President Bush had served with, and they would come, number one, and they would just see a presidential center, museum, and library, and foundation, and they were in awe. Yeah, We don't have anything like this in our country, and they were all kind of jealous, right? Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, we do treat the family as a, as it's not just the president who has a role. We treat it as the spouse or whoever, right, yeah. has a role in this country that we do not in most other countries around the world and we supported in that way too. I mean, the first lady has a team and a staff in the White House and is expected to have a platform. Mm -hmm. And we're all a little bit disappointed if they don't use it in fruitful ways, so. Yeah. Uh, so when is it that you, when, when did you become Assistant Secretary of Education? The last year of the Bush administration. And you worked with Margaret Spellings. Yep. Um, when in there did No Child Left Behind take place? Also, we saw some mass shootings 
on Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech in particular. Yeah. On your watch. Tell, yep. tell us about those experiences. Yeah. Well, No Child Left Behind came. I was working on Capitol Hill when No Child Left Behind passed. And I actually worked on it as legislation. And that, that and it, it got, I mean, the reason President Bush was in Florida in a school on September 11th was because it had passed both the House and the Senate. And we were in the conference committee to work out a bill yeah. out of that. And we were stalled. We started to, Progress was slowing. We were hitting some road bumps. And so he was in a school and was doing a series of events to try and kickstart right. th that. Um, then, of course, with September 11th, the entire focus turned to Homeland Security and national security, which then delayed us even more. But then we really got back around to it. So it was it was signed into law in January of 02. So okay. it was the it was the first year of the Bush administration. I came in that summer and then worked on implementation for the six and a half years that I was in the Bush administration. Wow. Because it was just such a wide ranging law with a long timeline of implementation and a, and a lot in it. So I spent a lot of my time, whether I was in the White House or in the Department of Education, working on that because it was just such a big it affected 50 million school children across the country and every public school in our country and you know had requirements that didn't kick in for 3 years so there was a lot to it but then i got to touch you know kind of almost any other big education policy issue that we had whether it was proactive issues like how do we think about you know student aid or whether it was the reactive and like how do you deal with a crisis whether it was hurricane katrina and all the all the families who were leaving New Orleans and coming to Texas or anywhere else and yep. kids were showing up in the middle of the school year unexpectedly to mash some of the first kind of big mass shootings that we saw like Virginia Tech where I did a lot of work with the Department of Justice I'm in the Department of Health and Human Services on mental health supports we could provide and school safety assistance we could provide across the agencies of the administration um, or whether it was the financial crisis. And the reason that hit us at the Department of Ed is because all of the student loans in the country, the federal student loans in the country are backed by the Department of Education. And a lot of the private companies that provided the loans were invested in mortgage-backed securities. Mm -hmm. And they were coming to us saying, I'm about to go belly up unless you help. Wow. Which meant millions of, of college students across the country were not gonna have access to to student loans to be able to go to college. Yeah. So you you may not have necessarily been thinking about brand perception of the administration or even that of Secretary Spellings yeah. at the time, but certainly you had a philosophy or have a philosophy as it relates to communications yeah. and storytelling. Yeah. What, what has been your true north as you've advised these others through all yeah. of the litany of experiences you just shared well the story you know when we thought about no child left behind is probably the the most the biggest example of where we really thought about that because um i wasn't part of the campaign piece of it where he was trying to get congress to pass it but i came in afterwards and we had to i did events for six and a half years in the white house and in the administration to help tell the story of No Child Left Behind. Mm -hmm. Because we also had resistance after it passed from a lot of people who did not like it and wanted it changed or overturned or sued the Department of Education about it. Yeah. And our strategy was always 
go to the people most directly affected, go to schools, get into those schools, be with students, be with teachers, highlight the schools that are making progress and why, and use that to tell the story of why we do this work and the impact it was having. Not to do a lot of meetings with the state officials who were implementing it, we all looked like bureaucrats, like get out, go in the field. And every January 8th, that was when the law was signed. That wasn't the only time, but we would always do a big event to celebrate and talk about the results of No Child Left Behind. And I always got to work on that. I would get to call schools and tell them the president of the United States is going to come visit you. <laughs> One time I had a principal say, <clears throat> I don't believe you. I'm and I said, well, here, here's the White House operator number. Call this, ask for me, and hopefully that will tell you I'm a real person and I'm not playing a prank on you. It's legit. And so sure enough, that principal did that. You, as part of this, uh, had to do a series of events where the president would show up yep. and you made a decision that it wasn't going to just be the normal dog yep, and pony speech. show. And it led to one example where Secretary Spellings looked at you from across the room, uh, whether it was exasperated or, or, or frightened. Yeah. What, what happened? Yeah, it was. Um, so it was 2004 and we were I was in the White House, but of course it was an election year. So we did have to think about how do we put him out? Right. And what are the communications vehicles we use? And and um, and so we were. Uh, one of the decisions that was made in the White House was that instead of having him do a lot of speeches, we wanted him interacting more in his events. And so they changed the format of a lot of his events that he did. And so I, the, the education event was the first one where they changed this format. Uh -huh. And they wanted him to go to a school and sort of almost lead, a, they called it a conversation, which was a handful of people sitting together on stage sort of talking mm -hmm. about this topic, a parent, a teacher, the school principal, whomever it may be. And uh, Margaret turned to me, I was 26, and she said, you're up, you go to St. Louis, Missouri. We had picked the school, Laclede mm -hmm. Elementary, I still remember it. Um, and you gotta go 24 hours ahead of time and prep all the people who are gonna be on stage with him to make sure that they don't feel nervous, that they know what the conversation's gonna be about. So I would go practice with all of them and get them ready. Anything you so just gently interject, did you ever tell them like, do not say this to the president or this, no, this is off limits? I don't think we had anything that was off limits because part of it is you tee it up, right? And you try to make it as natural as possible, right? Make this and you put them in the conversation because they have something to say that's very grounded in their day-to-day -day life. My son, Ben, you know, is behind in reading and today he's flourishing because of X, Y, and Z. You want him telling that, not weighing in on education policy. <laughs> right. So you make, you that's the goal, is you've got to figure out how to do all of this and you had to, you had to essentially tee up the discussion for the president, right? Here's what we generally want you talking about. Get up there and go. And uh, you didn't have much prep time with him. They, he knew how to do that. Any politician knows how to do this because they yeah. get a very quick briefing and then know how to go out there. And he was very good in these kinds of circumstances because he's a real kind of regular guy. Yeah. Let's converse. And so they knew that that environment was going to be good for him. Mm. I do remember being in the school. This didn't have to do with the conversation. As I said, I was in my mid-20s. And there was a kindergartner. And, you know, when the president shows up, 
snipers on the building show up, the Secret Service comes and has to put up metal detectors and there's a lot of security around. I was walking around the school hours before and when a kindergartner saw me and I was wearing a suit, and he stopped me and said, are you Mrs. Bush? <laughs> no. I clearly was disappointing him. One more question on No Child Left Behind. Uh, former Senator Ted Kennedy was a big proponent. In fact, there's a he letter, was. a handwritten letter from Senator Kennedy in uh, the Bush Library, mm -hmm. thanking President Bush for pursuing a lot of people in this era of lack of bipartisanship. Yeah. Uh, did you work with Senator T I did. Kennedy? And what was that like? What I was did. it like? He, uh, number one, he was a, just a master legislator. Um, but he was also like fiery at the same time. I mean, that's what I loved about him. I worked with him and his staff very closely on No Child Left Behind. And when I was confirmed in the Senate, it was be it was when he was chair of the Education Committee and I knew his team. So they got me through unanimously in the Senate because he, respe he respected who I was and he respected President Bush. President Bush, though, uh, worked really hard to build a close relationship with him. And that first week in the White House, he invited Ted Kennedy and his family over for movies in the White House movie theater. Hmm. And they watched a movie about the Cuban Missile Crisis, which of course was his brother. So uh, he knew if I'm gonna try and get education legislation through the Senate, the number one person I need is Ted Kennedy. Um, and so he worked on that relationship from day one and it wasn't an accident. But what I love about Ted Kennedy is he, um, he was a master legislator. He knew when to negotiate, but he'd also go out on the Senate floor and give the, the you know, most fiery speech, uh, sort of against what you're trying to do. But then he'd walk off and he'd be willing to have a rational conversation, say, okay, let's, let's like negotiate. So this is for show. Yeah. And then this is what's really yeah. going on behind yeah. the scenes. And it, but it wasn't a secret. I mean, it's not like he was, you know. Disingenuous. No. But that was very much part of it. Like he went out there, you knew what he stood for, but then he also understood how to negotiate, which is a lost art these days. Be on the lookout for part two of my conversation with Holly Kuzmich, where we discuss her time working with the George W. Bush Institute and her current role with Draper Richards Kaplan Foundation. Thanks for listening.